Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Franny O'Toole, host on New Books Network, and it's my pleasure to be joined today by Lindsay Thomas, Assistant Professor of English at University of Miami, to talk about her new book, Training for Catastrophe, Fictions of National Security After 9-11, out this week from University of Minnesota Press. Welcome to the podcast, Lindsay. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and congratulations on the recent release. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, so to lay the groundwork for this conversation, do you want to briefly explain a bit about the book and how you came to studying the material? Sure, yeah. Thanks for this question. Um, the book centers on uh, the national security framework called preparedness, which has sort of moved to the center of U.S. national security policy since September 11, 2001. Um, it preparedness sort of broadly concerns um, the question of how do we prepare people to respond to disasters and catastrophes of all kinds, from terrorist attacks to natural disasters like hurricanes to something like a pandemic. Um, and it's a it's a national security framework that has a long history within the United States. Um, but as I said, it sort of moved to the center of policy after the terrorist attack of 9/11. And the book is concerned with how preparedness specifically uses fiction to train people to think about disasters in particular ways. And I, I sort of make the argument that preparedness is uniquely concerned with the power of fiction to train people to think in um, particular ways about disaster and about what national security means and who deserves protection and who doesn't. Um, and uh, we can talk about the variety of materials that I uh, look at in the book. Um, everything from sort of documents, training exercises themselves, to graphic novels that the government has put out, to video games designed by FEMA. Um, all these materials are meant, many of them, for a sort of general audience. And they're, the impetus behind them is about training people to think about disasters in particular ways so that they can respond to them in particular ways. In terms of how I came to the project, it's a long story. This was um, the basis for my dissertation, uh, which I completed at University of California, Santa Barbara in 2014. Um, and I sort of fell into this topic. I didn't go to graduate school in English thinking I would write a dissertation about national security. Um, I, I you know, was studying contemporary literary studies and cultural studies, and I took a graduate seminar on, on, it was sort of a seminar on risk. And we read one article in that seminar um, by Andrew Lakoff, who's a security studies scholar that was about preparedness. And that article included interviews from government officials asking them their sort of thoughts and opinions about a particular training exercise that they had used um, to train members of their team or their group uh, to respond to to respond to a disaster. And I was immediately struck when I read this article by how, I guess, seriously the, the national security officials who were um, speaking about the preparedness training exercise that they had undergone, how seriously they took um, this sort of fake exercise, a sort of made up exercise 
um, how seriously they were thinking about the value of this fictional, you know, disaster that they had been that they had used in their training. And it, it struck me for, for many reasons. Um, but I think one of them was, you know, when you go to graduate school um, in English, you often get the question, or even when you major in, in English, you often are asked the question, well, what do you plan to do with that? Or what is the value of, of that uh, major, or of that specialization? It's certainly a question that I was asked a number of times by many different people. And I think what immediately stood out to me when I read that article and this was now be about 10 years ago, um, is the fact that these sort of national security officials, people who you would think would not care at all about fiction, were taking fiction so seriously. Um, and then my dissertation grew from there. And, and the book is a sort of reframing and extension of the dissertation. So um, it started with just that one class and that one article by Andrew Lakoff. Mm. Yeah. Um, taking fiction seriously, definitely. And that that's reflected in, in budgets too. I thought that was such yes. an interesting point that you make quite early on about how the Department of Homeland Security is in fact, you know, um, in certain ways, the largest federal funder of fiction. Um, you say here that 420.3 uh, million of the uh, $41.1 billion Department of Homeland Security budget was earmarked for preparedness. Um, and that with, um, Agencies that amounts to three point one seven billion uh, compared to the National Endowment for the Arts, which has a total budget of two hundred ninety nine point six million. Um, and yeah, I think like um, that. Yeah, that I think was quite an interesting sort of connection to be made. Um, and later on, you point out how um, when we think of fiction as a tool for envisioning transformational change, we're really talking about how fiction is an instrument, and that really that goes both ways. Um, and as you say, quote, imagining new possibilities can be used to constrain political action just as easily as it can be used to encourage it. Um, and yeah, I think something that was interesting to me about that, too, and how you kind of like nuance that is how um, you you were talking, you weren't saying that or you were talking about how like um, it wasn't fear that you were focusing on as the constraint. Um, you were talking really about the control of fear and emotion management. Um, and I'd like to hear you speak maybe a little bit more to that, uh, which feels different from when we're talking about fiction as this tool for transformational change, which I think often in Thinking the Break releases joy and surprise and these other kinds of affects. Um, so, so can you maybe talk about how it's specifically being used in the preparedness context? Sure, yeah. So th there's a sort of couple of different strands to this answer. The first is that um, in terms of how preparedness or even national security more broadly has been discussed within literary and cultural studies um, over the past 20 years, and it has been discussed by a number of scholars, um, the tenor of that discussion often, though not always, but often is about fear or, and or trauma and or sort of the um, other you know, emotions of exigency that disasters might inspire in people. And so the conversation for a long time has, I mean, we can think here about you know, the work of Brian Masumi, who's been widely influential in this field, has revolved around fear um, and how sort of national security materials work to create fear in people so that then they can control people because people are afraid, right? So if, if you make people afraid of a terrorist attack or of a hurricane or what have you, the, the idea or the argument goes that then they're going to be, you know, easier to control. 
And I think fear obviously does play a, a role in what the national security state is up to in terms of its use of fiction, its instrumentalization of fiction. Um, but I think, you know, when you actually look at the materials themselves, the documents, the exercises, the weird graphic novels that they commission artists to create, the video games, what you see is not so much an emphasis on fear, but rather an emphasis on, not an, not an emphasis on creating fear, rather an emphasis on teaching people how to control their fear so that they can act in particular ways. And sometimes this is very explicit, you know, for example, um, something I talk about in the book is a FEMA um, exercise design manual from 2007 or something like that. Um, that's a whole manual written for designers of training exercises that's meant to teach them how to how to create a training exercise. And that whole manual is geared toward um, affect management and control. And the thing that that sort of manual hits home again and again is that you don't want people to be too afraid when they're doing these exercises. You want them to be interested and excited enough by the thing that they're doing so that they pay attention. You don't want them to get bored, but you also don't want them to be so overwhelmed with fear or anxiety that they're not learning anything or they're not able to, to perform the activities that they should perform. And so just what I saw again and again in a lot of these materials was uh, was that they were designed to help people curtail their fear and contain it in various ways. And so that the sort of affective tone that they that these materials are looking to strike is not one of um, heightened anxiety, but rather of a sort of calm neutrality, um, a sort of you know, the, the idea that you want people to, to feel calm, cool, and collected. You want them to act as a professional um, when disaster strikes, and so that you know they do the things that they're supposed to do with haste, but um, not with fear. And so I think that was um, a, a major shift that I wanted to make in this book from previous conversations, which had centered a lot around fear, and I think rightly so. Um, from some perspectives, but I think fear is not the only is not the only thing involved, and it's not and it's not even really I would say the most powerful um, affect that these materials are seeking to uh, in, inculcate in people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, curtailing fear, and then also I I think you do like a yeah a really interesting job of looking at how they produce a, a particular understanding of resilience. Um, and I, I'd like to hear you maybe speak a little bit more to that term, um, especially because I feel like, yeah, so I come also from kind of like an architecture and urban planning background and resilience is definitely mm-hmm. used in a particular way in that context. Um, and it's an, it's an interesting word, particularly as it sort of um, implies, yeah, kind of bouncing back or return to the status quo, which, you know, like America is always in recovery, but like, you know, like it's, it's often stated as this kind of like return to, yeah, normal to a status quo. Um, and I'd be interested to hear you sort of talk about how that relates to resilience, but then also, yeah, you do, I do, you do such an interesting job of bringing in, yeah, complicating resilience in, in other ways too, that I'd like to hear you speak about. Yeah, sure. So resilience is, I mean, I say at the beginning of the book, the sort of central keyword or component to a lot of preparedness discourse. Um, it's a lot of the sort of explicit stated goals of the of these materials is to um, teach people how to be resilient, meaning teach people how to respond to disaster in ways that are productive and that allows them to, them and communities to sort of bounce back. 
uh, from disaster, right? And there's a there's a long history which I which I touch on a little bit in the book of uh, discussions of resilient resilience within environmental science, environmental humanities, um, urban planning, where there the conversation is you know, often about you know how do we design cities to be resilient? That's certainly something that we that people think a lot about in, in Miami, where I live. Um, you know how how is my, how can we build Miami to be resilient for the climate change that you know has already started in our city? What's the future? for um, Miami's infrastructure gonna look like. So that conversation often revolves around resilience, around the idea that infrastructure and people should be sort of trained or educated in a particular way or constructed in a particular way um, and, and that enables them to bounce back from disaster. Um, and I talk about that in terms of uh, sort of, you know, premier moral virtue of preparedness discourse is to create resilient subjects. And another sort of strand of this conversation is there's also a lot of scholarship in a, in a field called security studies, which is mainly located within um, the sort of qualitative social sciences that has discussed for, you know, two decades now, um, sort of the problems with resilience discourse. And, and that, the, that critique of resilience is often um, about how resilience uh, hooks up into sort of all these ideologies concerning neoliberalism and neoliberal capitalism, right? And so the, the critique from the critique of resilience from the security studies angle has been, um, you know, resilience is about placing the responsibility for disaster management on the individual. It's about, you know, sort of removing any idea of social responsibility that the government might have or that we might have collectively for each other, and instead teaching us that um, you know, the responsibility to prepare for and respond to and bounce back from hurricanes is somehow ours and ours alone as individual subjects. And that's been a, a longstanding critique from security studies. And I take that into account as well. But what I what I do in in the book specifically um, in one of the chapters that's that centers on resilience is I as I shift from thinking about resilient subjects to looking at characters within the materials that I'm examining published by the national security state and created by the national security state who are described or positioned as resilient. And so I, I so I, I make the shift from subject to character um, in a sort of, you know, looking out from a more literary studies angle. And that allows me to think about the really complicated ways actually that these materials um, construct and respond to the characters that they are seeming, that they are seeming to hold up as resilient. And it's actually, what I found is that it's much more complicated than a simple sort of, you know, extolling of the virtue of the moral virtue of resilience. These these materials, I talk about um, some video games designed to teach children how to respond to natural disasters. I talk about um, uh, speeches given by presidents, uh, so President Bush, Obama, and, and Trump, on the anniversary of 9/11. And I talk about this CDC zombie graphic narrative um, that was sort of part of their like tongue-in-cheek zombie preparedness campaign that was about pandemic preparedness. Um, and I look at, you know, who's who's sort of described as resilient in each of these different materials and how these materials describe these characters as resilient, the character of the hero specifically, like what does it mean to be a hero in these uh, materials? And there's a lot of sort of complicated, ambivalent, and contradictory attitudes that these materials have themselves toward these resilient characters or heroes, right? And so in that chapter, I try to, I try to draw out um, the, these complications, which have to do, I argue, in that chapter with um, the sort of line that the concept of resilience tries to 
tread between uh, person and thing, right? As, as you said in your question, resilience as a concept has its origin in materials science, right? It's a, it, it names the property of an object to bounce back. It's about elasticity, right? In a sort of real material sense. And that gets um, made metaphorical when uh, these materials start to think about you know, who is resilient and what it means to be resilient. And I end up arguing in that chapter that the zombie, a figure that has a long historical association with uh, the Caribbean, with uh, blackness, uh, with a history of slavery and colonialism, is the figure that at once sort of exemplifies, you know, the dreams of resilience for, for the national security state, because what or who is more resilient than a zombie who refuses to die, who can bounce back from death, who will, who will never end, who doesn't stop, right? So on the one hand, the zombie is a sort of perfect example of the most resilient uh, character that you can think of. On the other hand, um, the materials in which the, the, the sort of comic in which the zombie uh, appears is quite ambivalent um, and, and about this virtue, this sort of ability of the zombie to bounce back, the, the sort of aspect, of the fact that the zombie is uh, living dead and is associated with a long history of blackness and of slavery. And so I try to bring all of these uh, things together in this chapter to think about really ultimately the um, very ambivalent attitude that these materials take towards something that they purport to, um, you know, sort of praise, which is resilience. But when you actually look at the materials themselves, it becomes a lot more complicated. Mm -hmm. And I believe it's that chapter that ends um, with the coda about um, Audre Lorde's litany of survival. Um, and I was really interested formally in, in your use of codas. And I'd, I'd like to hear you talk maybe a little bit more about particularly the poem and how the poem relates to, yeah, kind of themes you were just discussing, but also, yeah, the decision to include codas, to frame them as codas, um, which I thought was particularly interesting as you're kind of speaking about this kind of dominant paradigm and how you're stepping outside of it and these other kinds of traditions that exist outside of them already. Yeah, yeah. So um, to talk about just about the poem and its place in the argument in that chapter, um, you know, the, the chapter ends with talking about the CDC comic, with talking about zombies and with talking about sort of, you know, how the figure of the zombie um, is is reviled and how there's a lot of, you know, I, I, I'm using uh, Kai McGlover's argument, who's a scholar of the Caribbean, um, that there's a lot of sort of what she calls repugnance wrapped up in the concept of resilience. And so I try to think through what that repugnance actually looks like in terms of this um, graphic narrative. And that's where the chapter sort of ends. But I wanted to bring in the Lord, uh, specifically her poem, A Litany for Survival, um, one, because it seems that that poem itself is having a real revival right now, not just in Black studies, but in speculative fiction, sci-fi studies overall. A lot of scholars have been reading it in the past five years in really interesting ways. Um, but also because that poem, as I write in the chapter, centers specifically on survival, right? And so I make a shift in this coda from thinking about resilience. I sort of try to push resilience as a concept as far as it can be pushed um, to reveal its contradictions within national security discourse. And then I shift in the coda to thinking about, well, what if we didn't think about resilience, but instead we thought about survival? Because what that poem does, among many of the things that it does, is it presents a sort of um, a vision for how to survive catastrophe 
every day, right? And, and Lord, as a black woman, is writing to an audience of black readers. And that's, you know, it's a poem about those who weren't meant to survive, as she very famously puts it, right? And so it's a poem about thinking through what does it mean to survive beyond all expectation, right? Which is, again, you know, that question I sort of end the chapter with before I get to the Lord in, in terms of, in the context of zombies. But then what the Lord allows us to do is think through not sort of um, resilience and its relationship to death, but survival and its relationship to life. And what does it mean to, to keep living on and to build practices of survival and to build practice life-affirming practices of survival through ongoing catastrophe, which is really what I see among the many things that that poem does, that sets up for us. So the, I mean, that's why the Lord is important to that chapter. In terms of the, the sort of structural use of codas, which I use in, in that chapter, in, the, in, the, in chapter five, the following chapter, you know, I was really, I really had this question for a long time, both in my dissertation and then in, in this book about, you know, what is my archive, right? Is my archive for this book, am I, am I drawing a line or, and just having it be national security materials or materials that have some direct relationship to national security? Am I going to draw that line? And for a long time, I wanted to draw that line. And I wanted to say, you know, we're not, I'm not going to talk about actual novels. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about, you know, poetry. I'm, unless it's written by the net, unless it's written by DHS or something. Right. Um, <laughs> but I think I, um, well, on the one hand, that's, it, it's a sort of um, limiting, it, it, it's limiting, right, in a way. But I was interested in that limitation itself. Like, how far can you push these materials was part of my question, right? Is there a way to, to push one's analysis of these materials so far that they that we can start to see how they break down and how they're really weird and how they don't make any sense? So I wanted to do that. But I also wanted to sort of um, try to at least gesture toward the question of, well, what else, you know, what else is there? What do we do, right? If we can show the contradictions that are inherent in these materials, if we can show where they fail and how they fail, right? And if we can show the sort of, you know, inadequacies of this approach to thinking about disaster, what's the other side of that, right? What can fiction or literature or literariness do that can be helpful for us in thinking about how to think about disaster? And so that's where I eventually came around to the idea of, uh, the codas and then the epilogue itself, which looks at sort of fiction of a different kind, um, collective organizing in a way, um, as, as a way to to think through well, what's on you know what's on the other side of this sort of critique of preparedness? Um, you know, how else can we think about disaster? And there's been a long, long history of obviously of in you know fiction thinking about disaster in different ways. And I just selected a couple things to talk about for this book, but. I think, you know, the idea of the codas um, is that, you know, you know, structurally, if we think about it, you know, just formally and structurally, since you asked, if you think about a piece of music that has a coda, it, the coda is sort of structurally separate from the, from the piece of music itself. And I wanted to sort of invoke that with um, my use of codas in chapters four and five, that they would, they would be connected to the arguments I was making in those chapters, but also structurally separate from um, those materials and those arguments in a way. Yeah, um, I definitely want to come back to the epilogue. I think that's where I want to end because um, I think it's very rich. But um, just to sort of sit a little bit longer with the literariness, yeah, maybe this is a good time to talk about um, the categories of genre and plot that you also focus on in different chapters. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
Um, yeah, so the whole sort of, I guess, shtick of the book is that I'm going to not only be examining preparedness materials through a literary lens, but thinking about how sort of foundational concepts that are foundational to, to literary studies as a discipline and to literature um, are also in operation within preparedness materials. And one of those is character, which we've just been talking through in the resilience chapter. And then the genre and plot are, are some other ones. And uh, the, the chapter on genre, which is sort of the middle of the book, was a, was a really tough chapter for me to write. I think I went through like, I don't know how many different drafts, at least 10 <laughs> drafts of that chapter. Um, there's, there's a lot of balls in the air in that chapter and I'm still not even sure that I totally get it right. But I think what was interesting to me about genre and about thinking about genre in that chapter specifically is the relationship um, between genre as a concept, you know, as, as a thing that names a category of fiction. Um, and uh, genericness, or in other words, like what's the relationship between being generic and being a member of a genre, right? And those words, you know, share a sort of etymology in a way, um, sort of, um, but, and they sound alike and they look alike, um, but I was interested in how the concept of genre contains within it this, I, some ideas about genericness or about being generic, and that connects for me in the book to preparedness because as we were talking about earlier, a lot of the impetus behind preparedness is about training people to contain their emotions, specifically fear, to become sort of neutral in their affect and to become what I call in that chapter, a sort of generic professional, right? And so there's a lot of preparedness materials that are geared toward teaching people who are not professional disaster managers to like take a training course, you know, one day in your office or whatever, um, or, you know, for a, a lunch period at school, um, take, a, take a training course and how to survive it. The one I talk about specifically in the book is an active shooter training um, course. And then sort of, uh, it, you know, take this course and then you become a sort of quote unquote professional in uh, disaster response and management. And so there's a whole sort of discourse of professionalization that happens within these courses that I talk about in that chapter. And a lot of that professionalization has to do with training people to control their emotions, to be calm, cool, and collected, to be a sort of um, expert in emotion management, if you want to think about professionalism in that way. And of course, professionalism also involves, and I talk about in that chapter, a sort of whole implicit vocabulary of whiteness. Um, and, and I try to unearth in that chapter how professionalism is, how a rhetoric of professionalism is also a rhetoric that's about whiteness and about white people and about aspiring to be a particular kind of white person and a particular kind of whiteness. Um, and so I try to bring those two strands together in that uh, chapter. And, and, I, and I make the argument not so much that preparedness materials are a particular kind of genre or that they, you know, um, that we can group them and, or name them as a genre but rather that because they're so concerned with genericness and with convention that they're, I sort of make the argument that they're concerned with training people to do what I call think generically or to think about disaster according to particular conventions and in particularly conventional ways. Um, and so I, I use the, the concept of the convention both aesthetically and sort of normatively in that chapter to think about what it means to be trained to think conventionally about something. So, so that's the genre chapter. And then in the, the plot chapter, which is the, the last full chapter in the book, um, I'm, I'm building off of a, you know, a long tradition in literary studies of thinking about plot as an interpretive activity that you know, goes far back, as far back at least as Peter Brooks. 
um, and his sort of widely influential um, book about plot. Um, and, and, I, and I look at counterterrorism materials um, published by the National Security State, um, including the see some, If You See Something, Say Something publicity campaign and a couple other publicity campaigns. Um, and, and I think about how these materials train people to, or, or rather what it means to conceive of and to imagine a terrorist attack that hasn't yet happened as a plot and what it means to sort of read particular people or situations or even objects like an abandoned backpack or like a, you know, a, a notebook or a package as a sort of elements of a plot that has yet to unfold. And so there I'm, there I'm thinking about how those materials teach people to, you know, read into things or to people and to, to sort of see in a speculative sense the plot that, that is unfolding that they must then try to prevent in order to stop the terrorist attack from happening. Um, and so in, in that chapter, I'm concerned not so much with plot as, you know, the structure of a narrative or as, you know, the, even the elements of a narrative, but rather a, a, with plot as an, as an interpretive activity that can be taught as a way to learn to read into things and to see sort of, again, conventional narratives that we've been taught to see in, you know, something as banal as a backpack sitting by a trash can. Um, and, and, and so, uh, and I, and I end that chapter with a code that's about get out, um, the Jordan Peele film, which is like any good horror movie. It also trains viewers to read for the plot in this particular way. Um, but it does it in a sort of way that's totally opposite to the national security state, even though they're both about providing certain fantasies, right? The national security state's about providing a fantasy that, um, you know, all it takes to prevent terrorism is just to notice that there's an abandoned backpack and, and then you've stopped the terrorist attack. Whereas Get Out is providing a fantasy of, you know, what would it actually look like for the national security state to try and stop the terrorism that is white supremacy, right? Um, so they're, they're, both, they're both geared toward fantasy, but in different directions. <laughs> Yeah. Um, in the plot chapter, yeah, I was interested. You were you also talked about like the hermeneutics of suspicion. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can elaborate a little bit on that and maybe a little bit on it seems to me that yeah, these are sorts of twin forces at play of like suspicion in some things and kind of un like unquestioned trust in others. And I'd be interested to hear you speak a little bit more to that interplay. Yeah, so the, the hermeneutics of suspicion is a is a term that's you know very familiar within literary studies that Trace, we can trace it back to Eve Sedgwick in, in the 90s, talking about a particular style, and even back before that, talking about a particular style of reading, right? And there's been a lot of, I mean, the sort of backstory to this, there's been a lot of conversation within literary studies as a field about what's often now called, you know, the method wars, having to do with, you know, how do we read? What's the right way to read a work of literature? Do we, do we read it suspiciously? Do we try to read into things to understand what this work of literature isn't saying, what it's obscuring, right? What goes unsaid? Do we read it, um, you know, in a sort of surface oriented way to try to understand, you know, uh, the, the emotions or the affects that it might make us feel to try and understand the, the productive nature of this work of literature? Do we read it in a million other ways? And so this conversation about sort of what's often called suspicious reading or the hermeneutics of suspicion is one that's been going on a long time within literary studies. And I was sort of interested to take this concept that seems so wrapped up in debates, you know, in sort of rarefied debates within literary studies 
um, that nobody would really care about unless you unless you're a literature scholar um, and, and sort of try to understand what that looks like within the realm of national security because I think at a at a very base level campaigns like if you see something say something are trying to train or are sort of organized around rather training people to read into things to read people and objects in a suspicious way right to understand again to go to the example that's always used that an abandoned backpack you know might be a bomb or something right i mean that's a sort of baseline um concept that motivates these materials and so i was i was interested to think about what is suspicion not just what does suspicion look like within the realm of national security because that's been discussed a lot particularly in terms of if it, in terms of the if you see something say something campaign Again, if we look at security studies as a field and within security studies, sort of surveillance studies, a lot of scholars have discussed the role of suspicion in the if you see something, say something campaign and how it encourages people to sort of spy on each other. Um, there's a concept called lateral surveillance that's often discussed in relationship to if you see something, say something. I was, you know, sort of interested in that, but more so in terms of not just the, the the suspicion itself, but rather the sort of training to read that is involved in that suspicion is that, well, how do we learn, how do these, how are these materials communicating to us that we should regard a backpack with suspicion, right? How does that actually happen? And I wanted to try to unpack that um, in, in that chapter. I'm sorry, what was the second part of the question that you asked? Oh, um, I guess it was a little bit about the kind of shadow of that of, of trust and how trust is sort of oh, yes. pinning, I don't know, various sorts of chapters. I think this it sort of comes up. With. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think hmm, trust, that's a really good question. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> hmm. can you say more about what you meant by that question? Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I think like you definitely make an, a really interesting argument about how um, like preparedness basically sort of undermines any attempts at sort of um, critiquing it. Like it's it's quite slippery mm, in that way. Um, and I'm interested both in how, um, yeah, how like another sort of way that that gets like is manifested is is yeah, just like the sort of like faith or trust in in its sort of authority or like in its mm-hmm. capacity to um, produce sort of result or produce results that work which as you I think really skillfully show like actually like quite often fail but again like the it's it's it, the structure of it is such that that go back like that gets a little bit that gets lost um yeah yeah I'd just be interested to see yeah hear you sort of speak to that to like trust as a kind of through your work yeah yeah that's a great question um I think you know again one of the problems that I came up against when I was writing this book particularly um is the fact that, you know, I was thinking to myself, okay, I'm interested in critiquing preparedness. Obviously, I'm, I'm showing how it's flawed. I'm showing how it doesn't work. I'm interested in showing where it fails and who it fails specifically, um, you know, who it's aimed at, white people, and, you know, how it, how it teaches them to feel in particular ways and to not think about other people. Um, and so, you know, I was interested in that critique, but I kept thinking as I was even writing that critique, this is, yes, this is true, but also preparedness itself. There's such an emphasis in these materials, if you read them, on critique and feedback of the training process itself, right? I, I show at one point in the in the book a sort of diagram that's the, that, you know, the exercise cycle, and it's, a, and it's a circle, right? And, you know, there are five stages to the circle. It's like plan the exercise, you know, um, do the exercise, and then there's a, there's, a, there's a few more stages, and then the last stage is like, you know, 
critique the exercise, and then that stage leads back into the planning, right? So the, the idea behind preparedness is that it's a continuous process that everyone in these organizations, no matter you know what organization you're in, really, in the United States, that you're undergoing a sort of continuous process of training, and a continuous process of you know, learning how to respond to disaster and that, you know, critiquing the exercise that you've just performed is part of that process. You know, there's a sort of emphasize um, the feedback aspect, right? Like, uh, you know, the, the idea that will now provide us with feedback on what you liked and didn't like about this training exercise. How could this training exercise be better? How could it teach you, uh, you know, different things or better things, right? And you see this emphasis repeated again and again and again on, um, criticism and critique and feedback as part of this exercise cycle. And so for me, it sort of presented a, a conceptual wall, you know, in, in terms of thinking about what do we do with this critique of preparedness if criticism is itself part of the process of preparedness. Um, and so I, I wanted to try to, that was again, sort of one of the impetuses for the, the CODA um, aspect of the, of the book to try to, you know, see a way outside of this exercise uh, cycle. Um, but I also wanted to, you know, think through part, a lot of the energy behind preparedness training exercises, is not just teaching people what to do when confronted with disasters or how to feel about those disasters, but also the sort of totalizing effect of this, I argue, is that it teaches people that, you know, preparedness is the only way to respond to these things, that we can only understand disasters within a paradigm of preparedness, even though, as we can see with, you know, sort of multiple disasters and then disastrous responses to those disasters, everything from Hurricane Katrina to now COVID-19, preparedness as a model is deeply flawed and it just doesn't actually work um, and it doesn't do what it purports to do. But yet somehow because, and I make the sort of case that because criticism and evaluation and constant feedback is part of the model of preparedness, we can all, you know, preparedness planners and government officials can always say, well, we'll just, we'll just do a better job next time, right? It's somehow that any criticism, it seems to be that any criticism that people make of preparedness itself gets sort of wrapped up into that cycle and it, as you know, and becomes part of the preparedness training itself. And it seems to be that there's, it can often feel that, you know, there's no way out of that cycle um, of, you know, of criticism because any criticism just gets wrapped back up into the next training exercise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely absorbing. And as you say, like never ending too, I think that that's an interesting sort of focus of the, of your piece too, is um, I think at one point you were talking about how um, preparedness it's, it's post-apocalyptic, it's not apocalyptic, it's post-apocalyptic. Yes. <laughs> 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 time frame is endless. I mean, with apocalyptic fiction, it's at least about, the end, right? Whereas apocalyptic <laughs> fiction concerns itself with the endless aftermath, right? And so, and I think that's really what preparedness is about is, um, yes, okay, there's been a disaster. Um, now, how do we respond to it? And how do we respond to the next one that's coming down the pike forever and ever and ever and ever and ever? I mean, the cycle is a really apt diagram for them. And they're not, they're not kidding about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I want to, again, I want to end with how you how you end up kind of subverting that both in your codes and also in your epilogue. But maybe before we get there, um, kind of second to last questions. Talk. I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about, yeah, the the sort of timeliness of all of this. Your prologue ends up addressing the COVID crisis, um, and I'd be interested. I mean, you know, so I think that was written in June, July, and now 
you know, whatever, like eight months later, um, would be interested to see what, if anything, you would sort of add to it, particularly in light of, say, like the insurrection at the Capitol, which I think really um, heinously like fits into your kind of pattern, your the, the pattern that you describe, um, mm-hmm. both in terms of the the sort of embeddedness of white supremacy and national security, but also in terms of, yeah, I, I read your book before the insurrection and, you know, mm-hmm. the question was definitely asked, like, what, why weren't they more prepared? Um, so I, I, you know, either speaking to that or to developments in COVID, just anything like, yeah, maybe speaking to like, yes, this, this quite profound relevance of your work. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it, Unfortunately, writing a book like this, it seems, you know, newly relevant every, you know, six months or something like, I mean, uh, the COVID crisis has been going on longer than that, but, you know, obviously I didn't write this book thinking that we would, you know, the past five, well, I guess I've been writing the book since about 2015. So, you know, as I was writing the book, sort of undergoing one disaster after the next, it it felt like often, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And, and, you know, as I say in the preface to the book, I submitted the sort of final manuscript version of the book in January of 2020. So it was before there were any known cases of COVID-19 in the United States. It's before the sort of, you know, the possibility of a global pandemic seemed at that time still quite remote to me here in the United States. Um, and then obviously by the time I got the proofs in July, all of that had changed. <laughs> um, and so I, I really felt the need at that point over last summer to add the preface to um, to, to not only just address the COVID-19 crisis and to, to sort of make clear, if it wasn't clear to readers already, how it fits within the paradigm of preparedness, but also to emphasize the fact or to drive home the fact that, again, this this ties into the previous question you asked, the the response to a failure, the response to the failure to respond adequately to disaster in the United States is often, well, why weren't we prepared? Why didn't we plan better? You know, why did we, you know, why did Trump fire his pandemic preparedness panel, right? Why, you know, why weren't the, um, the Capitol Police better prepared, right? Why wasn't the National Guard deployed on January 6th, right? So all these questions are not about, are we, pre- are we even thinking about disaster in the right way? Is paradigm as a, as, is preparedness as a paradigm even functional at this point, which I, I think it's, it's just really not. Um, but rather, the questions are all geared toward how do we, how do we do preparedness better? Right? How can we prepare better? And, and those questions, as I say in the preface, I mean, sort of almost always come from sort of the Democrats, right? Because preparedness has a long tradition within uh, sort of liberal politics of the United States. Um, and it's really a liberal paradigm. Um, and so I think those questions, which can often seem like a critique, for instance, of the Trump administration, right? He filed his, he fired his pandemic preparedness people. They did a terrible job of preparing for, you know, preparing for a pandemic. They, you know, didn't do the things that they should have. They failed in all these ways, which is all of which is absolutely true. And absolutely lives could have been saved if they had prepared better. At the same time, preparedness would not have saved, you know, but not have saved the number of lives that we would want to it to have saved, right? You know, if we could imagine a, a democratic administration being at the helm last year in 2020, right? And so I wanted to express in the in the preface um, the sort of uh, critique of 
the failure to respond to disasters, which almost always comes from the left or the, the moderate left, and almost always is about the need to prepare better and not about the need to change the whole paradigm of national security. You know, not about the need to ask the question, why does the Department of Home, why is ICE and FEMA under the Department of Homeland Security, right? That happened after 2011. Why, you know, what does that actually mean, right? That, that, that unlocks a lot of um, answers to our questions about why we fail to prepare for disasters. But that's, those aren't the questions that are being asked. The questions that are being asked are, well, why aren't there more experts in, you know, pandemics on this presidential panel to, you know, prepare for them? Not those I just think are the wrong questions to be asking at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and related to the Department of Homeland Security, do you want to talk a little bit about um, how you look at how you investigate homeland as a concept and how the term is used? Yeah, so the Department of Homeland Security, I mean, that word homeland does a lot of work ideologically. It does a lot of, um, it's done a lot of work ideologically for two decades. Um, and I think it's important that we remember that when the Department of Homeland Security was created, and I talk about this in the introduction a bit to the book, it, you know, it wasn't just created out of nothing, right? There's a sort of long, long history going back to at least the beginning of the early Cold War of um, thinking about national security in terms of what, of what we might now call preparedness. But when that department was created, it wasn't called, you know, the Department of Preparedness or the Department of National Security. It was called the Department of Homeland Security. And I think, you know, I make the argument in that in the book, as, as other scholars have made as well, um, that that word homeland names not just or only a sort of physical geographical space. Um, it names an ideology and it names an ideology particularly of white supremacy. And so the sort of unnamed uh, population that is indicated by the term homeland um, is, you know, white, the white people of the United States, right? So that the term homeland is not just this, homeland is not just a space, it's a people and it's a sort of ideology of an implicit ideology of a sort of white America, um, which is what I discuss in the book, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. Um, okay, yeah, um, then maybe for this, the, the kind of like end of the interview, yeah, I wanna come back to the epilogue, as I said. Um, so first, yeah, you talk, do you wanna kind of talk about the Stop Urban Shield um, example, give a little bit of sort of context for the work that they have done? Yeah, sure. So Stop Urban Shield was a um, sort of coalition of community organizers and activists who came together um, in uh, the sort of early 2010s to fight um, uh, the Urban Shield um, sort of police training expo um, that ran for many years in the Bay Area. Um, and it was the largest sort of uh, the largest um, police training expo in the United States, I think maybe in the world. I'm not positive on that. Um, but it, a large part of the what happened there, in addition to things like you know sort of weapons expos and um, you know sort of trainings for first responders, was a large portion of Stop Urban Shield was dedicated to over the the sort of week that it would run was dedicated to SWAT team trainings. Um, and so dedicated to teaching, you know, police how to use the increasingly militarized equipment that they were getting from the Department of Defense and other places um, and how to deploy that equipment um, in the context of a, of a SWAT team. 
Um, and Stop Urban Shield, again, this coalition that arose to try and prevent um, Urban Shield, the, the trainings expo from being held in, uh, in the Bay Area. And over a number of years, they were eventually successful in sort of petitioning the county governments um, to make that happen. And the sort of um, sheriffs of Alameda County, where um, Urban Shield was first uh, run, you know, they, that county was getting a lot of money from DHS and from um, other national security agencies to put on Urban Shield. Um, so it was quite a sort of profitable enterprise for them. And Stop Urban Shield, uh, you know, mobilized a lot of people, a lot of different uh, sort of mutual aid and community organizations across the Bay Area to make it difficult for them and then to make it impossible for them to even hold the sort of SWAT team uh, training. And they did this in a variety of ways. There were sort of, you know, uh, collective actions that they participated in. They, they um, you know, petitioned the county uh, board government um, in any way that they could. They also sort of... Um, worked with community organizations to emphasize a vision of preparedness that was less militarized and more about sort of mutual aid and community preparedness. Um, and so they, they would make their own uh, preparedness materials that they would try to distribute at the sort of um, events and fairs that they would have. They would hold sort of parallel events at when Stop Urban Shield was going on to um, try and draw attention to the fact that this is not a thing they wanted in their community. As I said, over a number of years, they were eventually successful in sort of shutting down Urban Shield, which was, again, the largest sort of source of SWAT team training for police forces in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and, and the way you end that, that argument and the book itself is um, you say, Stop Urban Shield, quote, laid the foundation for a different world, one without Urban Shield, one that was only ever fiction until it wasn't. Um, and I was, I just, I found that change in tense so powerful um, as, as sort of like a, um, yeah, like as, as sort of like proof of concept. And it also made me think about how I, I think I'm more used to books ending on a note about the future. And I think what was so interesting to me about that tense choice is that, um, yeah, it, it's past, I think it, it speaks to a projection of the future that happened in the past that had a completion to it, a real end, mm -hmm. um, which I think relates to, we were talking earlier about this um, preparedness being in the post-apocalyptic post zone, this like endlessness, um, this like stage of transition, you know, always. And um, and when you're talking about that, you quoted Frank Commode, 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 mm -hmm. and saying mm -hmm. um, that there's just a lack of confidence and ends and and again like that's why I found that choice so interesting because there there was a real sort of end there's closure there um yeah. and um yeah decisively like you end the book not in a stage of transition um and I thought that was quite interesting um and decisively confident in ends um and so to kind of phrase that as a question I'd yeah I'd like to hear you maybe speak a little bit more to that the crafting of that last line and ending the book there um maybe related too to like, I think throughout the book, you have a really interesting, yeah, kind of literary studies perspective on tense. Um, and would just like to hear you speak a little bit more to that. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this book is steeped in terms of its scholarship and sort of sci-fi studies and studies of speculative fiction. I cite a lot of that scholarship and that fiction and that sort of history of sci-fi studies as a field has a long history of thinking about narratives that are about the future as, as being progressive, right? And of sort of celebrating that aspect of 
science fiction, which is true in a lot of science fiction work, where the authors are trying to imagine progressive visions of the future, right? And there's a long history of, uh, of scholarship in sci-fi studies that is about celebrating that. Um, as you said at the sort of beginning of our interview, I was interested in how what that meant when it was not about envisioning a progressive vision of the future, but rather a really um, sort of retrogressive um, vision of the um, always extend of, of the future sort of, but which is really only a vision of a sort of imaginary past that is also just a never ending present <laughs> to put it in a, in a sort of complicated way. Um, and so I, I was interested in the epilogue and I'm glad that you, it makes me happy that you picked up on that. I was interested in actually trying to find a way to end the book with something like what does an actual end to preparedness mean? What does it entail, right? If preparedness imagines a future that goes on forever, if it imagines itself as never ending, right? If it imagines itself as never, like we can never escape the, the, the training cycle. What, how can we actually think about the end? And so I, I just looked, you know, I used the sort of Stop Urban Shield Coalition as a case study in thinking about, you know, not just what does it take to change the tactics of the national security state or what does it mean on a small local scale to not allow something like urban shield to happen right so i was interested in that question um, but i was also interested in um the question of you know within every collective action and this is um imarisha who i'm you know quoting here who i quote in the book um an author of science fiction and speculative fiction you know she says that all organizing is science fiction right Be and that's because all organizing is built around a vision of trying to imagine a better future and so i wanted to actually look at a case where that happened <laughs> i mean in a, in a sort of real literal way right like stop urban shield is no more and they succeeded in doing this through collective action and through organizing and so i was really interested to to find an example of the national security state, the sort of, and um, all that it entails um, in preparedness, you know, and um, it's huge machinery and sort of one small aspect of that machinery, which was the Urban Shield um, SWAT team, you know, training expo, which is about, I should have said, you know, training SWAT teams to, um, you know, ostensibly it's about training SWAT teams to sort of deal with terrorist threats is a large part of the training, but really as Stop Urban Shield and others argued, most SWAT teams within the United States, when they're deployed, are deployed for things like, you know, um, arresting people who have a warrant out against them, you know, arresting one person, right? It's not to stop or prevent a terrorist attack, right? Um, and so I was, I was interested in um, thinking about what does an end to preparedness look like? What does that entail? Um, how, you know, I don't know if we can scale this up in any way, but what, what is one success story, right? What is one thing that happened to put an end to the sort of endless projecting of disaster that is part of the preparedness machinery? Um, and Stop Provincial is a great example uh, for that for a lot of reasons. But the, the main one is that they were successful, <laughs> which when I was when I was writing this book, it, I wasn't sure if it was going to be successful or not. So it nicely worked out for me. Thank you, Stop Urban Shield. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, great. Well, I was glad you ended there. And yeah, I think we can <laughs> end here. Thank you so much again for um, coming on. And yeah, again, your book just came out this week. So everyone can sort of find it, I'm sure through most booksellers, University of Minnesota Press. Uh, it's called Training for Catastrophe. And yeah, thank you so much again. Um, I really appreciate this hour. Thank you. This was really fun.
Thank you.